Good morning, church. I'd like to apologize to, uh, to the visitors here today. You got the third string quarterback. <laughs> but thankfully, the word of God does not change. And it's a privilege to serve you this morning and to, to go to the word together. Um, so as we do that, open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 65. We're going to be continuing our psalm series uh, that Jeremy started. Um, And if you are able to stand, please stand to honor the reading of God's word, Psalm 65. Where the Lord says to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one who you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. May God honor the reading of his word. You may be seated. My hope and prayer this morning is that by the end of today, we'll be able to thank the Lord for Psalm 65 and the Psalms in general. On that note, let me mention that whenever we come to the word and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for Psalm 65. Thank you for Romans 8. Thank you for Genesis 3.15. We're starting out on the, on the right foot in order to receive the word from God. So let's do that this morning. Let's pray. Holy God, through your spirit, you have imparted these words to us that we may know you better and be made more like your son. Thank you for the gift of this psalm. We need it. May we, may we now worship you by valuing your word more than gold and relying on it more than bread. In your gracious and mighty name we pray, amen. We just recently celebrated Independence Day. Now I know what you're thinking. Oh, he's bringing patriotism into this. But that's not the point. We celebrated Independence Day, and many of you were bombarded with all these images of red, white, and blue pasted on everything. If you've been in the county for long enough, either a year or long enough to celebrate the 4th, 
you know that St. Mary's County folk like us some fireworks. <laughs> Going to see fireworks either over, either over the Patuxent River or formerly the fairgrounds slowly becomes a tradition, especially if you have, you're a family with young kids who are in awe at the sight of, of this firework display. Unfortunately, the rain this year, it put a stop to all that. Nothing really happened on the 4th, but that's beside the point. The point is that it's a display. It's a fireworks display. A display is something we can see with our eyes and we can call it to memory. And that's what David is doing in Psalm 65. He is describing something that he has seen, that he has witnessed, so that we can recall it later. Also, he is showing how God has put himself on display in different ways, not only to show that he is worthy of praise, but also to show that we are the ones to give him praise and that he receives praise from us as we remember. This morning, we're gonna look at three of these displays of God to his people that David describes in this psalm. But just a little bit of a warning, we're gonna walk through this psalm twice. Now, it's not gonna be an hour long, but we're gonna briefly go through this and then we're gonna have application at the end, so hang with me. With that, let's go ahead and dive in. We should note that this particular psalm, Psalm 65, was written around a time of feast or harvest and was continually used at these celebrations to, to proclaim the kindness of God and his grace in bringing provision. As shown in that little introductory header on the top of the chapter, this is a song. It's a song of praise. If you can imagine, the Israelites are gathering their harvest, they're gleaning their crops, they're putting their livestock together that are all fed and fat and happy. And it seems like this song could be ringing in the background of this, this celebration of abundance. David finds himself in the midst of these times and he can't help but burst into praise. And this is where we see him begin with these words, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. Or as the New King James puts it, Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. The entirety of this psalm supports why praise is due from us and to God. And the first reason is based on God's display of grace. So that's our first point. God is worthy of praise in his display of grace in verses 1 to 4. In, in this first part of the psalm, David is establishing that God is gracious to his people in a very unique way. And for that, he deserves worship. When David mentions that little phrase, in Zion, that takes us off guard sometimes, he's saying that Zion is the place where God's praises are stored up, where they're centralized, and where his people gather and worship. If you look back in scripture, you'll see that Zion is used as another name for Jerusalem, which housed God's temple. For David, this is that white hot center where God dwells with his people and where his people offer praise and sacrifice to him. Psalm 76, two written by Asaph reads, his abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. If you're the people of God, this is the most important geographical place on planet Earth. 
This is where God has chosen to reside with his people as he sits in the Holy of Holies in the temple. What David knew and what we ought to long for is that dwelling with God is shown to be, is, is the highest privilege that any person can receive. You dwelling with the Lord is a miracle and is the highest um, goal that we ought to attain for, but we can't do it in and of ourselves as we will see later. In verses two and three, God is shown to be the one who answers prayer and atones for transgressions. Only a God of grace would hear his fallen creation and only a God of grace would be willing to pay for the transgressor's debt. Answering prayer is evidence of God's grace in him receiving his people. And then forgiveness is the primary grace that he gives to his people. That's the one identifying factor that determines who is not God's people and who is God's people is those who have received forgiveness. And David here is saying that, Lord, we've received forgiveness. We praise you for that. Verse four is actually the culmination of David's reflection on God's grace as he says, blessed is the one you choose to bring near to dwell in your courts. Not only is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly blessed, as we saw last week in Jeremy's message, but also the man who is brought near by God. Now let's consider for a moment why, why, why is proximity so important when it comes to God? Why is being near to him so important? David is saying here that no man deserves to be close to God. Yet God brings him near and allows him to experience the satisfaction, the goodness, the joy of being spiritually and physically near to him. David is focusing on, like we just talked about, Zion. This is where the manifest presence of God is found in that Holy of Holies, in the temple, in Jerusalem in Israel. So if you think of concentric circles, the Holy of Holies is that, that place where God manifests himself, which is in the holy city of Jerusalem, in the people of God's territory that they have been promised. When it comes to being near or far to God, nearness is the way the Bible describes those who have received grace to be in relationship with him. For example, in the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus, there were different perimeters that symbolized increasing purity and holiness. The camp was where the daily life and the ritual uncleanliness happened. And then you have the, the courts, which housed the altar and where the sacrifices happened in order to purify that person and then in, inside of the tabernacle, you have the holy place, which is reserved for the Levites who are also purified beforehand. And then you have that holy of holies where the presence of God rested. The whole point here is that being far from God is a bad thing. Being near to God is a great and even a dangerous responsibility as that high priest was only able to go into the Holy of Holies where God dwelled once a year in order to make atonement for the people. However, those who were near to God, namely the people of Israel versus 
those who were outside of Israel, those surrounding nations, they were blessed in their nearness to him because they were allowed to be close to God. He doesn't have to bring anyone near to him. The reason why God is worthy of praise by bringing his people near is that sin is something that distances man from God. Here, David is rejoicing that God has willingly brought his people close to him out of the overflow of his grace in spite of their sin. Not only that, but he is showing his people exactly what they need, God himself. The second half of verse four says, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. Essentially, we will be satisfied by your gracious gift of exactly what we need, you. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The God who satisfies and allows men to know him is worthy of every praise. This brings us to the second point as the psalmist begins to reflect on God's power in verses five through eight. God is worthy of praise in his display of might. When we think of God and what sets him apart, usually the first thing to come to mind, that comes to mind is his power, right? He is powerful, more powerful than we could ever imagine, more than we're able to do. We think of pounding waves or thunderstorms, which are evidence that God is even more powerful than the forces of nature. David uses visual imagery to remind those who sing or hear this song that God is the mighty one who is the hope of the ends of the earth. The one who answers prayer back in verse two also uses his might to answer those prayers. The reason why God is the hope of the ends of the earth is that he is the only one who is powerful enough to save. Verse five describes how God acts powerfully to show himself to be able to save because he is righteous. Revelation 7.10 says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. The one who sits on the throne is the only one who is able to dispense salvation. He has the power to do so. He has the power to give. He has the power to withhold. He is the only one able. David use, uses poetry to highlight, highlight God's power. This power is visible in that he can make mountains immovable. He can make the powerful waves stand still. He can stay the hands of warring nations and he can calm the peoples. And these things are made clear worldwide. If you look at Romans 1, 19 to 20, when Paul is describing why every person stands condemned before God, it's because God's attributes, God's nature is clear to every man. Every man can see it if he just looks around him. Psalm 113, four to six says, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like our God who is seated on high, who looks far down from the heavens and the earth? The answer is that there is no one like our God and his displays of might deserve the only adequate response, which is praise. Take a moment with me to consider this, salvation. Have you ever tried to save something? Something like that tricky egg that wants to roll off the counter and you can't do anything to save it. 
Or what about something harder? Something like saving a child from the throes of misbehavior brought on by his or her friends. This is, this is a little bit more difficult, a little bit farther out of our control, farther than our ability can handle. The point here is that God is able to build up mountains and settle what is in turmoil, and it leaves people in awe. Yet what is more magnificent is that he is fully able to save his people. And back in in verse four, David cannot help but glorify God for that fact alone. Ought we not do the same? Only God can save because he is the only true and living God. If you would recall in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah and the prophets of Baal have their little conflict on Mount Carmel. What Elijah is doing is he's trying to convince King Ahab, the wicked king, that he can't go back and forth from Baal to Yahweh, Baal to Yahweh. Instead, he wants to prove that God is the only true God. Many of you know the story where the prophets of Baal set up their respective altars, as does Elijah. And the prophets of Baal cry endlessly for Baal to burn up the altar, but nothing happens. Elijah prayed to the Lord and God, said, God sent fire from heaven to consume the altar that had been doused with water beforehand. What, what was Elijah's goal in that? It was to show that Yahweh alone is God. And in this Psalm of praise, David is doing that exact same thing. He's saying God alone is the one true God who can save. He was showing that not only God commands the seas and forms the mountains, he alone is powerful. And as we'll, see, as we'll see a little bit later, he is the only one who can truly save you. God is worthy of, of praise and his display of provision. Verses 8b to 13, this is our last section. Lastly, David launches himself into this barrage of praise for the supply and provision of God. This is where we should stop thinking about words on a page and start picturing what David is actually trying to communicate to us. What better way can we use our imagination for the glory of God than trying to picture the landscape that David's trying to paint? Um, Let me read verses eight to 13 again. Eight B, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This would be far different if David had said, we had more than we needed and God provided it. The benefit of poetry and scripture is that it evokes a response from us that maybe an instruction manual might not do. This is meant to excite us to the wonders and the glories of God. God is gracious for giving us a psalm such as this. If you lived in an agricultural society, 
What is the sign of blessing other than a land bursting at the seams with provision? Remember that this song was historically sung at the time of harvest where the bounty of the year was collected and God was praised for the gift of sustaining his people. Thus, when David considers the provision of God, what else would he look to except for the life-giving food that God presented or preserved until harvest? The reason why God is able to provide is because he has everything to give. Everything is his to give. We just finished a series on generosity where we learned that God is fully generous to us. As Psalm 50:10 says, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. The point is not how many cattle the Lord owns. The point is that God's supply does not run out and that he can dispense it as he sees fit. The fact that he dispenses it to us is why he is worthy of praise. Andrew Carnegie, the baron of the steel industry, accumulated massive amounts of wealth in the early 1900s as he owned a portion of virtually every step in the steelmaking process. As he made unthinkable amounts of money, he gave this money to benefit society through the building of libraries and, and other institutions. Some believe, listen to this, some believe he gave away $350 million in his lifetime, which is a massive amount even now. The reason why he was able to give away so much money is because he had an abundant supply. The same exists with the Lord over all things, but in a much greater way. God is the provider of everything from food to salvation because they come from his needless hand. God is needless. We are needy. God has supply. We have need. You might be asking, why is this so important for me? We've been talking about David and God, but what about this passage for my life right now? This is where we have to look at this psalm with new covenant eyes to see that God, through David, is actually driving, driving us to Christ. Let's go back. This is where we're gonna make a second lap. Back to verses one to four as we revel with David in the praiseworthy grace of God. We acknowledge beforehand that God bringing his people near to him is the most gracious thing he can do because it means being closer to the Holy One without being killed for our impurity. How is this possible for us? Friends, the glorious nature of this psalm is actually found in Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's you and I. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What David saw as the greatest privilege coming into the presence of God is made sure and final through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The writer of Hebrews, I love how he puts this, makes it clear in chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the new and the living way that he opened for us, and then in verse 22, 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Israelites, they once needed a sacrifice to be pure before God in his temple. When they entered those courts, they were offering a sacrifice so that they could be pure right before God. We stand behind the cross. We stand purified because of the blood of Jesus. The blood of goats and bulls is useless compared to that of the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, God is worthy of praise. He's worthy of it. He deserves it in his display of grace to you at the cross. He has offered his son as a sacrifice to bring those who are far off near. Remember, those who are near are blessed. Near to the glorious presence of God where there is fullness of joy. If you have not believed in this grace that is being held out to you even now, know that you have an opportunity to be washed clean and called righteous before God because of what Jesus has done for you, regardless of what you have done. Take that opportunity that you may be freed from the sentence that hangs over you that says, guilty before God. And may Christ wash you clean with the blood he shed in your place. He is worthy of our praise, friends because he is unimaginably gracious to us. Now look back at verses five through eight, where we can acknowledge God's might once again. Excuse me. Once again, you see David's, David uses the example of forces of nature to symbolize God's strength, because that's what he sees, that's what the display that he sees right in front of him is the Lord stilling the waves, the Lord building up the mountains. He says, God, you are mighty and I praise you for it. But in light of the grace we just mentioned, keep in mind, David was a foreshadowing of Christ. He had not experienced or seen Christ. In light of that grace we just mentioned, that sacrifice that Christ made for us was not accomplished without power. We don't have to search high and low for examples of God's might. We don't have to search because it's right in front of us that our Savior conquered death itself to save us. Jesus Christ, after being beaten and slaughtered on a cross, lay in the grave for three days, and he was raised to life. Oh, the might of God that beckons our praises. If you remember earlier, I read Revelation 7.10 which says salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. It belongs to God, salvation is his. But I left out an important detail and I hope that it's clear now. Let me read it again. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Salvation belongs to the lamb who is receiving the praise of angels in Revelation 7 as they surround his throne. The lamb who was slain in Revelation 4, the lamb who was slain who is now standing, he's alive. And we ought to be singing the praises of our Savior day in and day out for as long as we have breath. The reason why God is worthy of our praise and his display of might is because he is worthy of our praise 
in his display of might at the tomb of Christ. Only God could raise himself from the dead for his people. Last, we look, we look at the beautiful picture of abundance that causes David to just explode. I love it. He explodes in worship for the Lord, for his, for his provision. The line that sticks out to me most in this section is verse 11. You crown the year with your bounty. You crown the year with your bounty. The picture is of God placing the finishing touches on the year with feasting and plentiful harvest just that cherry on top. Lord, you crown the year with this rich bounty because the Jewish calendar often revolved around harvests. It often revolved around times of plenty. So it may very well be that the end of the year came with abundance and people praise him for the finish of a harvest. Friends, God crowns the years in his blessings but he has crowned eternity with the provision of his son. Let me read to you the words of Paul that were ringing in my ears as I was studying this, this passage. Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously. You and I have received that master provision of Jesus Christ on the cross, shown through grace and might. And that is the, 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 the provision of Christ coming is God becoming, the, becoming man and dying the death we deserve and finalizing it by rising from the dead. He has already given us his son and he offers us an inheritance that will last for eternity. Friends, keep in mind that we don't even deserve his son, how much more the inheritance that he has promised in eternity for those who believe. We have a generous king. One of my favorite quotes from C.H. Spurgeon, he says, I have a great need for Christ. Thankfully, I have a great Christ for my need. Some of you may be wondering if the depth of sin can be met through the death of the Son of God. Yes, yes it can. Because when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Grace is deeper than that sin. A few points of application. First, David praised God based on what he saw that displayed God's glory. And who has seen more than David? Friends, we live in the shadow of the cross and have seen the glory of God shine through the death and the resurrection of his son. This psalm says that even creation is singing for joy. Even creation sings for joy to the Lord. Yet whose voices should rise above those of creation? Ours. Creation has not been saved from sin. Not yet, that's later but you and I, Christian, have been saved by the blood of Christ, the, the unseemingly and unbounded gracious gift. The redeemed of God have more reason to praise God for his grace, might, and provision than anyone else, more than anyone else even in history. We stand in a very privileged place looking at the cross 
in a backwards way. David was looking ahead. He was looking for the hope of Israel. Some people thought he was the hope of Israel. But he was, the, he was a promise of that future hope. When you go out about your day, when you come to this assembly of believers, when you experience steadfastness producing trials, when you see the successes and even failures of your child, should not your mouth be full of the praises of God? Regardless of the occasion, if you are in Christ, you are constantly and eternally benefiting from God's grace to you. And that requires every bit of praise that you can give. Secondly, be on the lookout for displays of God's glory. And when you find them, because they're all around you, when you find them, point them out to yourself and point them out to others. This is what David was doing when he wrote this psalm. He was, first of all, pointing, pointing out these things to himself, but then he's writing it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for, for the people of Israel to benefit from and for us to benefit from today. One of the ways that we can best share the gospel to unbelievers and to proclaim it to believers is by pointing out things that only God can do. I think of recently the death of Rick Stegmeyer. Many of you know him. He was here, part of our congregation, and the Stegmeyers moved to Georgia. But that man at 80, over 80 years old, was baptized here in this building. And the grace of God for even a man at the end of his life, at the back end of his life, is one that you and I, Christian, can rejoice in. What more powerful display to those who do not believe than a Christian rejoicing in death? The most feared thing on this earth is death. Yet when we praise God for his glory, when we behold him, when we share that with those who do not know, it is powerful. I hope and I pray that we have accomplished the goal we set out to do this morning, and then it's that we would become suddenly grateful for Psalm 65. It is a rich gift from the Lord, as he did not have to give it to us. However, because he has, he calls us to do something with it. If God has placed something on your heart today, take a step in obedience and do that. I'll close with a quote from commentator Matthew Henry who wrote concerning God's praiseworthiness in verse one. Praise is due to God from all the world, but it waits for him in Zion only, in his church, among his people. Church, we of all people ought to be full of praise for our Savior, amen? Even as we sang this morning, let the church proclaim that this is our God. Our God has been displayed through his grace, through his might, and through his provision for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Let the church proclaim that thing. Let's pray. Gracious, mighty God, our provider, you have 
given us the ultimate provision and that is an escape from death and hell, an entrance into your presence, being near to you, Lord. And how nearness is a blessing, Lord. If we are not near, may we draw near. If we are near, may we rejoice in it. May we, may we sing your praises today for it. And Father, may we not lose sight through the busyness, through the, the distraction that your glory is all around us. Lord, I pray not for you to display yourself more necessarily, but Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see your glory. And Father, help us to know the pleasure and the satisfaction there is in knowing you and having received the gift of your son dying on a cross for us. To you be all the glory, the honor, and the praise forever. Amen.